This is hell. Greetings, radio listeners. This is not Chuck. This is board operator Dan. Chuck's out this week doing some important housekeeping uh, for the show. Chuck uh, goes pretty hard in the paint. He needs to do a little housekeeping stuff. And that, that can add up. Sounded to me like he needed to, a little time to defragment the drives. Chores like that. Uh, he'll finish those up and he'll be back and better than ever next week. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a nice time right now playing some classic This Is Hell interviews from years past. I've selected a few interviews from the mid-2000s with John Perkins. His book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, had just come out at that time. I remember reading that. We'll get to that soon. Uh, We do have a question from hell this week. This week's question from hell is, what are you doing with the extra hour from Daylight Savings Time? Which ends at 2 a.m. on Sunday, November 6th. Post your answer over at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and at the end of the show, I'll select the winner. Said winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merch, which you can see at thisishell.com slash pages slash support. Okay, let's turn to the business of the day. I'm going to play a few classic interviews this morning from John Perkins, author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I read this when it came out, and if memory serves, it's basically about some sort of World Bank high-up economic spook type guy who was hired to get developing countries to take sucker loans, which would kneecap their economies and make them reliant on the West and secure access for the West to their precious resources. I don't know if that's quite right. That's my Cliff Notes recollection. Let's see how it stacks up with John himself, the author, describing it. Uh, So here's Chuck in 2007 talking to John Perkins about his books, Confession, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and The Secret History of the American Empire. John Perkins is on the line with us. He is author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and he's on to discuss his new book, The Secret History of the American Empire, Economic Hitmen, Jackals, and the Truth About Global Corruption. Good morning, John. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, Thank you very much. This is an exceptional book. I really enjoyed reading this book, especially uh, three months ago when I originally scheduled to be on the show, and I apologize for being sick. And I thank you very much for rescheduling and being back on and being on our show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm just glad we have this opportunity. You know, uh, just I know this is a a little bit off the topic, but um, the I'd heard about your book. Uh, and I had not your first book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, Hitman, and I had not had an opportunity to read it uh, yet. And this is a few years ago. And then one of our producers, uh, Kate O'Donnell, she's going to be on our show uh, later on on this morning's broadcast. Uh, one of our former producers, she was reading this, uh, the Confessions of an Economic Hitman, as uh, you know, required reading for a class here at Northwestern. Have you found it? Is that uh, is that typical, or is that out of the ordinary that university professors are using that as a classroom text. I I know a lot of them are. I don't know how many exactly, but I do a lot of lecturing at universities and and just came from uh, University of Colorado um, and uh, Iowa State and, uh, let's see, where was the other one? Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. Uh, It was interesting that in every one of those schools that the book was, uh, I think, required reading, 
in at least one or at least one course. But uh, and in some other courses, it was it was recommended reading or you know one of an alternative of things to read. You know, I I, I mean. I don't know uh, how you feel about this, but I just find that kind of odd when you consider what you usually see as reading material at a university. Now, granted, you know, like something like, all right, let's just use this as an example. Uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. You may see that at some more uh, more, uh, liberal universities being used as a textbook. Um, But do you you find this surprising seeing as how this challenges so many of the assumptions that I'm sure college students, when they leave from high school and go away to college, probably have about the United States government? Well, I think it's I think it's very encouraging to see this, you know. And when you when you think about it, it's it's I I did work for the World Bank for many many years. I I am a, a legitimate economist. It 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 makes absolute sense. And yet I understand completely what you're saying, and 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 that is that in so many colleges today, there's, there's such a strong influence from the the corporatocracy or the, the you know the right wing and the and, and the, the corporations that are providing a lot of funds to a lot of these colleges that might resist a book like mine but there's a lot of very enlightened professors including in business schools including uh, you know teaching economics in the last year I've spoken at Wharton Business School and at Columbia and and a number of other uh, business schools that you I found surprising actually that they invited me, but I also found it very encouraging and I found that the students really really want to understand uh, the true nature behind our, our economics and our geopolitics, which is very different from what they've been raised to believe was going on there but they they want to understand and they should if they're going to go out into the world and truly function as as leaders they they need to understand uh, the underbelly. But do you think that this book would be read in those universities or be given that kind of credibility if you did not have the experience that you had, if this was just written by an investigative journalist or written by a historian? I can't say. I really can't say. Uh, But the reaction that I get from so many people is that it's been very meaningful for them to have heard this coming from uh, someone who was there who understood the system. In fact, it's interesting. I, I got that very reaction from Howard Zinn, who you mentioned earlier. Howard was a professor of mine at BU back in uh, the, the late '60s, and I never met him because it was a lecture, you know, 400 kids in his right. lecture, lecture hall. But he he contacted me after Confessions came out and told me that he'd read it a couple of times. And and so the next time I was in Boston, he and I uh, get together for dinner. And, you know, he, he told me, he said, you know, the first time I read your book, John, I slammed it down at the end. I said, God damn, you know, he said, this, this kid was a student of mine, and he didn't listen to anything I said. But he, <laughs> but he said, I really enjoyed reading it. So I went back in and I read it again. He said, the next time I slammed it down at the end, I said, Don, you know, I'm so glad he didn't listen to anything I said, because then he went out and, and, and worked for the enemy, and now he can truly expose them uh, from an insider's point of view. And, did, and I think that is an important part of it. Did you get your grade changed? <laughs> well, I did pretty good at that course anyway. I really, really enjoyed that course. Howard is a dynamic speaker, and even back in those days, you know, that was that was during the Vietnam War protest, and he was very much into that, very passionate.
Yeah, he's been a guest on a, a few times on our show, and he's a fantastic uh, person. You know, there, there, a couple of the terms that are in the title of this book, I want to make sure that people understand what they are: uh, economic hitman and hitmen and jackals. Uh, first, you describe uh, the economic hitman this way: you say the multi-trillion-dollar scam that you and other economic hitmen uh, pulled is that you quote channeled funds from the World Bank and its sister organizations into schemes that appeared to serve the poor while primarily benefiting a few wealthy people. Under the most common of these, we would identify a developing country that possessed resources our corporations coveted, such as oil, arrange a huge loan for that country, and then direct most of the money to our own engineering and construction companies. And a few collaborators in the developing country, uh, infrastructure projects such as power plants, airports, and industrial parks, parks sprang up. However, they seldom helped the poor, who were not connected to electrical grids, never used airports, and lacked the skills required for employment in industrial parks. At some point, we economic hitmen returned to the indebted country, demanded our pound of flesh, cheap oil, votes on critical United Nations issues, or troops to support uh, ours someplace in the world like Iraq. So that's the scam. How much does the scam continue to drive world affairs and decisions on foreign policy matters to this day? Oh, it's, 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 it's very strong out there to, to this day. And I think it's beginning to collapse. I think we, we, we really have created the world's first truly global empire and done it primarily without the military. But I think now that empire is starting to collapse. And, and you know, the, the follow-up to that, too, is on the few instances when we economic hitmen failed, as, as I talk in the book how I failed in Panama with Omar Torrijos, then the jackals are sent in. And they're sent in either to overthrow the government or assassinate that leader who we weren't able to corrupt. And that's exactly what happened to Omar Torrijos. He was assassinated because I failed. On the very few occasions when both the economic hitmen and the jackals fail, then and only then does the military go in. And that's what happened in Iraq. And I, I go into that story in some detail in Secret History uh, that, you know, we both failed and so the military went in. The system's very, very much in place today. Now, we're seeing in Latin America eight countries that have defied the system. And um, the president's elected there because they ran on a ticket that said, we're going to stand up to the corporatocracy. This represents more than 80% of the, of the voting population of South America. So we're seeing something very, very significant happen in, right now around the world. Unfortunately, most Americans haven't really understood that yet. The media is not covering these things well. Nonetheless, it's happening. How would you characterize the people who executed these scams, the economic hitmen? Are they, are they cynical exploiters or were they, you know, true believers in what they did? That this scam, you know, in, it, did they believe that in the long run this is going to be best for the people who live here, this is going to be best for democracy, and this is going to be best for the United States? I think they run all, every gamut of the above. You know, it's hard to generalize. And I think a lot of them start off, as I did, kind of believing in the system or maybe totally believing in the system and maybe over time get, get jaundiced. A good example of that is Joe Stiglitz, who was uh, chief economist at the World Bank and won the Nobel Prize in economics, wrote an amazing book where, he, where he, it's, it's very academic. It's not like mine in that it's very academic. But it, it's, it's an incredible book where he talks about these very things and how he, he came to the conclusion that his whole life was devoted to basically a scam, that no economic forecasts were made at the World Bank or the IMF uh, for, to really understand the economics of these countries. They were made for political reasons, for controlling reasons. And, you know, he, he, he was chief economist and, and winner of the Nobel Prize in economics. 
but I think he started off in a position of feeling he really wanted to do good things. I know people at the World Bank, a lot of young people who go in wanting to do the right thing, and over time they begin to understand that, that they're not, and then they have two choices. You know, either continue and make a lot of money and lead, lead the good life uh, and, and know that you're doing the wrong thing, or bail out. How long did it take you to realize that you were doing the wrong thing? I think I began. I, I, I realized that from the beginning that, that the potential was there. That, and I, I just come out of the Peace Corps, so I had a, I had a, probably a better view than most people. I'd lived with poor people in Ecuador, um, but nonetheless, the, the whole system set up to convince me otherwise. Macroeconomics, as it's taught in all our universities, t- told me that I was doing the right thing. Robert McNamara, president of the World Bank, patted me on the back, told me I was doing the right thing. I was invited to speak at Harvard and many other prestigious schools about what I was doing. I was paid a lot of money. I was given a, a staff. of uh, It came up to close to 50 people by the time I left. So there was all these things in place to, to convince me that I was doing the right thing. But the more I got into it, the more I, be, the more I had to con- uh, conclude that, I was, that this was not true. And I think from the beginning, my heart was telling me that it wasn't true, partly because I'd seen the other side from the Peace Corps. But it was so easy to justify what I was doing while I was traveling around the world first class and staying in the best hotels and eating in the best restaurants and whining and dining with kings and presidents and, and beautiful women. Uh, you write, uh, quote, my job was to travel to any region that appeared to have resources that multinational corporations might exploit, meet with community leaders, collect all available information, write a glowing report proving that huge loans to develop electric power and other infrastructure product or projects uh, would turn this medieval economy into a modern success. But, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, don't these advances actually help developing economies that could, you know, trickle down to help the everyday life of the citizenry? There's the rub. You know, if you look at the statistics, as, as I did in those days, you could see that the projects that I was doing were, were usually did result in increases in gross national product in the overall economy, which we all thought was a good thing. But when you look beneath the surface, you see that in most of these countries, increases in gross national product, when, when, when they're done in that way, are helping a lot, a few very, very wealthy people, those who own the big industries, those who use the airports and the ports and the electricity, those who own... Uh, the shopping malls, et cetera. Uh, but the majority of the people in the country do not benefit. And, in fact, the gap between the rich and poor widens. And it has done that in the last four decades since I was an economic hit. And it's grown tremendously much wider. So the poor have gotten poorer and the rich have gotten richer. And that's not to any of our advantages. That's, that's what results in terrorism. That's what results in, in disequilibrium equilibrium around the world. And so, you know, you can make, you know, from that macro standpoint, yes, you can show statistically things have gotten better. But if you look at what's beneath it and you look at it in terms of the actual people, the environment, the sociology, and so on, you see that things have deteriorated terribly. You know, that's what always kind of confuses me. We've had the economist uh, Dean Baker on our show numerous times. He's talked about, we keep pointing this out, about how just seeing on the news that the Dow Jones is up 148 points isn't necessarily good for the economy. It might be good for shareholders. It might be good for the Dow Jones. It might be good for the major industrial stocks that are being traded within the Dow Jones. But it's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily reflect what's best for the economy. So what would you suggest that people, uh, first of all, how would you, what explains this kind of disconnect there is between the media and the way that they look at these economic indicators as statistical proof and evidence that the economy is going up, when in reality, the actual effect of the economy on the ground might be something really different? 
Yeah, you know, just a, a few weeks ago, the statistic came out that in the last year, 1% of the U.S. population earned 21% of the income of this country. That's a pretty telling statistic. It tells a very sad and dangerous story. But if you, if you look at the entire world, the, 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 that statistic is even worse. And, you know, statistics can be used in so, so many ways. I think what we really need to look at is what is going on in the world. I was struck the other night by, you know, the, the presidential candidates debating immig- the immigration policy. And everybody's talking about, should we build a fence? Should we, you know, more laws that prohibit it? Should we give more, more, more leeway to, to immigrants and so on? But nobody was addressing the real question, and that is, why are they coming here? Why are there so many Central American people coming here? I speak Spanish. I go out and talk to them a lot. They don't want to be here, none of them. They want to be back in their own countries. But we've destroyed the economies in those countries through NAFTA and and CAFTA and what we call the free trade agreements. So they can't get jobs there. So they come here and they work incredibly hard at very low wages, living very much like slaves in, in some of the compounds where they live, send their money back home, and they're only here because they can't survive there and their families can't. So if we want to really solve the immigration problem, what we need to do is have our corporations and our government stop exploiting these countries that way and instead help them build up their economies so that the the Guatemalans and the Mexicans and the Nicaraguans and everybody else in, in, in those countries can find employment there. That's the way to you know to 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 solve these problems. It it it's it's not through erecting fences or more laws in this country. We're speaking with John Perkins. He is the author of the new, author of the New York Times best-selling book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He's got a new book out called The Secret History of the American Empire: um, Economic Hitmen, Jackals, and the Truth About Global corruption. Uh, You write about a a courtesan that you had overseas while working for the international consultancy firm Charles T. Mann. You write, quote, she enlightened me about the ways of high-level international business and diplomacy. And you quote her saying, expect hidden cameras and tape recorders in the rooms of ladies who try to seduce you. (laughs) Not that you're unattractive, just that things aren't as they appear. And you add, she taught me that women like her played a pivotal role in shaping some of the world's most important deals. Are you saying that not only is the world driven by a corporatocracy, but it's also driven by blackmail? Blackmail and seduction uh, happens on many levels. I was actually trained in in, in, in some of the things myself is uh, sometimes, it, 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 you know, the typical one is that a, a woman who's hired by a corporation or the government goes in to seduce a man. But the other side of it is sometimes men are, are hired to seduce the, the wife of a diplomat or, or something along these lines. And the typical approach is, for example, from a man's standpoint, and I talk about the case in Seychelles, a little country off the coast of Africa that's very important to us because of the Diego Garcia Air Base, which is one of our most strategic air bases. And when we were getting ready to overthrow the president of that country, I talk about this in secret history in some detail, uh, we sent a young man in to seduce the wife of, of one of the facial diplomats to find out if the president, Rene, could be corrupted or not. And the way typically that works is the man, once he seduced this woman, you know, after a moment of passion, he'll, the first ploy is to say, geez, you know, I really, I'm looking for a promotion. I could really use this information about your country. Can you help me get it? If she doesn't do that, the next time he says, I'm about to lose my job. I'm afraid I'm going to be fired. And he breaks into tears, which women often respond to, and says, if you don't get me this information, I'll lose my job. If that doesn't work, then the third and final attempt is, if you don't give me the information, I'm going public. I'm telling your husband there's going to be a huge scandal at the embassy. So 
it's a, it's a it's a it's an age old ploy, and it's used by both sexes, and it plays a major role in international business and politics much more than most people uh, realize. Why did the rubble of the World Trade Center make you feel you, quote, had to step forward and had to confess? What's the connection to the actions of an economic hitman and the attacks or the events, I should say, of 9-11? You know, as I say in Secret History, I started to write confessions a number of times after I got out of being an economic hitman, which was in in 1981. Uh, but each time people came to me, and, and I, I, I put the message out that I was writing this book, I wanted to talk to other economic hitmen and jackals, and people would come to me and threaten my life. And I had a young daughter at the time, she's 25 now, and then they would offer me bribes. And I took the bribes, and I put them toward good causes, uh, which assuaged my guilt some, you know, some of the nonprofits that I support today. But nonetheless, I didn't tell the story that needed to be told. And then at 9-11, and right, right shortly afterwards, I went up to Ground Zero, and as I stood there looking down into that smoldering pit, I knew I had to tell the story because I realized that the American people don't have any real understanding of why there's so much anger and resentment in the world. And this is not in any way to condone the mass murder that occurred there, but it is to say I knew I had to share my story. And so at that point, I, I, I committed to myself that I would not tell anyone this time that I was writing this book. I would do it totally alone. Even my wife and daughter wouldn't know what I was working on until the manuscript was in the hands of my agent and he'd sent it out to a lot of publishing houses. At that point, it became my best insurance policy. At that point, no jackal is going to come to me and try to bribe me or threaten me because they know that if that word gets out or if something dire happens to me, the book will sell many, many millions more copies than it would otherwise. You uh, you know, when we were talking before about economic indicators and how economic indicators and statistics might show economic success in a company in a country while at the same time there is no real economic success for the people of the country you point out how indonesia is a perfect example of this and also you write about how you were skeptical of us aid to the achinese uh, uh, tsunami victims right after the disaster americans were you know taking pride in the amount of aid going to the victims and jane <clears throat> jane Pauley was on tv shown flying over the wreckage boasting about how great the us military was even though it was engaged in afghan Afghanistan and Iraq, they were taking the time to go help out the poor Achenese victims uh, in, you know, delivering aid to uh, those victims. So what did you see in that aid that was sinister? Well, you know, Jane Polly is a great agent of the corporatocracy, like I was at one point. Um, we all want to believe that foreign aid is altruistic. Very, very little of it is. The fact is, after a tsunami or some other natural disaster like that, we do send the foreign aid in. We send water and, 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 and blankets and, and housing and Red Cross goes in with stuff and, and so on for a very short period of time. That is altruistic, but it's a very small amount. Afterwards, the billions of dollars that are earmarked to build up these places is used uh, not to help the bed-and-breakfast uh, mom-and-pop restaurants and hotels that were there before, not to help them replace themselves, not to help the small farmer or the little fisherman who lost his boat in the storage facilities. Instead, that money goes to big hotel chains and big restaurant chains and big construction companies to build big projects, warehouses, big fishing fleets, the ones that are owned by the wealthy people. It's very unfortunate that most Americans don't understand that that's what goes on, but it is. And in the case of Aceh, our military went in there because we were fighting a, a, a rebel group that had very, very legitimate complaints against the Jakarta government in Indonesia and were fighting to gain more independence. They had been for a long time. 
the tsunami provided a tremendous opportunity for us to send more military in there and wipe out that movement, which in essence we did do. Uh, you also write how, <clears throat> quote, empire building has been conducted largely in secret. That is uh, American empire building. Uh, since democracy assumes an informed electorate, these methods pose a direct threat to America's most coveted ideal. That, again, being an informed electorate. They also serve as a disturbing commentary as the result of my work and that of so many, quote, unquote, development experts. So who do you blame for allowing these secrets to continue being kept from the American people? Is it the, you know, the government, uh, their corporate sponsors? Because, you know, when I've suggested to people that it's the media, they'll always often say, you know, if this is such a great story, it would give a journalist a Pulitzer Prize and would be, you know, give more profits or legitimacy to a media outlet. So <clears throat> they always say, well, it couldn't be the media, uh, is it our fault is, um, as Americans? Is it, is it simply that we turn a blind eye to the problems and cannot look at ourselves and our actions uh, in our nation, warts and all, because it's simply you know, too damn depressing and would force us to review our entire worldview? Who do you blame for the fact that this is being kept secret from the American public? Well, it, it's really all of the above. Uh, I think most, uh, many Americans would rather not know you know, we don't, we don't want to wear a T-shirt that we think was made by a slave, someone who suffered terribly to make this T-shirt, and yet we're, for the most part, happy to buy the cheapest T-shirt that's out there. Uh, and, and, and so the cheapest one is made by slaves, almost <laughs> inevitably. Uh, the same is true for so many things in our lives. On the other hand, our whole education system, including the media, has a lot to, to, to uh, the burden to bear here. Uh, what you mentioned about a Pulitzer Prize and about selling uh, more magazines may or may not be true, but the fact of the matter is the advertisers are the ones that control the media, not the reading public. And the advertisers usually are the big corporations, the ones that are being criticized by books like mine and others, and so they don't want to see those books in there. Confessions of an Economic Hitman has now been on the New York Times bestseller list for over 70 weeks. It never was reviewed by the New York Times, never, in all those times, even though it was on their list because they didn't want to you know, make a big deal out of it at all. They didn't, their reviewers were not supposed to review it, because the New York Times is so supported by the, main, by, by the big corporation. A New York Times reporter followed me around for a while, and he did end up writing an article in the business section about the business behind the book, Confessions. And I've asked him and I've asked other reporters, you know, why aren't you guys telling the truth about what's going on in Latin America? Why are you making Evo Morales and... And Rafael Gutierrez, president of Ecuador, looks so bad, in addition to, of course, Hugo Chavez, which everybody's, everybody's trying to vilify these days. Well, why, don't you, you know, why don't you present the other point of view sometimes? And a number of these reporters have said to me, you know, I'm not censored in what I write. I can write anything I want, but my editor chooses what to publish and how much of it to publish and what to take out. And they don't publish that kind of stuff. And if they don't publish the stuff I write, then I lose my job. So, in fact, there is a censorship there, even though reporters aren't necessarily told write it this way or that way. They get the message, and they want those jobs. So there's a tremendous uh, tendency in this country, and this is not a conspiracy. This is simply the advertisers, the people who either own the, pr the press outright, the big corporations, or indirectly own them through advertising budgets, uh, have a lot of control over what goes into the mainstream media today.
You mentioned when we were talking about consumers and how they, uh, uh, you know, buy a T-shirt, the cheapest possible T-shirt, and it's more than likely made by slave labor. You know, I'm sure that uh, most of the clothes that I'm wearing is, uh, were, you know, uh, made in a sweatshop somewhere because most of the clothes that people do wear in the United States are made in, the, in sweatshops if they know it or not. But how do we overcome this disconnect the American consumer has with the impact uh, of our corporations? For instance, you know, like we're, we're discussing this, the vast majority of people I know who shop at Walmart are pro-union, support American-made products, anti sweatshop, believe in human rights, want to support the little guy, yet they still shop at Walmart because it's cheaper. So is it possible to overcome the disconnect American consumers and voters have when it comes to the impact and policies of corporations overseas? It's absolutely uh, possible, and, and it's, it's, it's extremely important that we do so. And, you know, I think Secret History is a very a positive book in that I devote the whole last section of what we can do to change this, and we must change it. Just don't shop at Walmart and let them know why. Don't buy Nike and let them know why. And I don't know about uh, your university, but I, when I speak at universities, where some of them uh, you can't even buy a product that isn't made by Coke on campus, and Nike supports all their teams. Well, this gives a tremendous opportunity to go in and tell Nike, change your ways. Tell Coke, change your ways. These aren't bad corporations, and they're not bad people working for them necessarily. We can bring them around, but we've got to let them know that it's unacceptable to us that they have the kind of practices that they have uh, these days. And, and, you know, we live in a very, very small world today, unlike the world in the 70s when I was an economic hitman. We're very interdependent. And I just had a grandson. I know that he cannot possibly hope to grow up in a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world unless every child growing up in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, everywhere, has that same expectation. If we want homeland security, we must recognize that this whole world is our homeland, and we need to take care of the problems that are causing terrorism, that are causing violence around our planet. And one of the most basic problems is is exploitation by our corporations and the resulting misery, starvation, and and disease that occurs as a result of that. And we all need to turn that around. And and I know we can do that, and I I talk extensively about that in Secret History. Yeah, and you're you're obviously very critical of multinational corporations and their actions overseas. But you also write that, quote, on the positive side, corporations have proven highly efficient at marshalling resources, inspiring collective creativity, and spreading webs of communications and distribution to the most remote corners of the planet. Through them, we have at our disposal disposal, uh, everything we need to ensure that those uh, 24,000 people People uh, do not die of hungry every, hunger every day uh, that currently do. We possess the knowledge, technologies, and systems required to make this a stable, sustainable, equitable, and peaceful planet. Now, I know that there are probably right now people who listen to this show immediately ran over their uh, keyboard and they're typing in an email saying, see, this guy is actually, even though he is uh, critical of multinational corporations at the same time, he is a shill for uh, corporations because here he's thinking that he's saying that the corporate model is a good thing. Is this in some way contradictory of the rest of your criticism of multinational corporations? No, I don't, I don't see it as contradictory at all because uh, it's, it's a matter of intent. And today, corporations define their intent as being to maximize profits regardless of the environmental and social costs, make a few wealthy stockholders wealthier. Uh, we need to turn that around and say that corporations need to have as a primary intent a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world. They can still make profits doing that. I'm not, in, I'm not opposed to that. Uh, I'm, I, I don't think that we're going to change this whole system, at least not in my lifetime. 
what we've seen throughout history, throughout the history of corporations, is that they're very, very flexible. They change when they're forced to change. We've, we've, you know, we've had amazing changes. When I went to college in the in, in the late '60s in Boston, you couldn't walk beside the Charles River; it was so polluted. Rivers in the Midwest of this country were on fire with pollution. We got the corporations to clean them up. We got them to get rid of aerosol cans that were destroying the ozone layer. We got them to open their doors wider to women and, and African Americans and other minorities. Recently, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's got off trans fats because we told them to, et cetera, et cetera. We've had tremendous impact. Now we need to turn around to, you know, ratchet it up a notch and say, listen, we want you to change your basic premise. Your goal is not to make huge profits for a few stockholders. Profits are fine. Make the profits, but, but not regardless of all of, of social and environmental costs. Make these profits, but in the process, be dedicated to creating a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world, one that our children will be proud to inherit. And I'm totally convinced that we can do that and that most everybody working for these corporations, whether it's Nike or Coca-Cola that we mentioned earlier, the employees there all want to see their companies do a better job. There's nobody, no CEO, nobody at any level that I've ever met, at least, that wants to see this planet destroyed. So let's make that part of our policy, part of the rules for making profit, that we can only make them under those kinds of conditions. And you write towards the end of the book, you write that, quote, modern corporations have all the rights of individuals, but none of the responsibilities. In fact, they are licensed to steal. So is that the most important or maybe you – know, let's just stick with the most important step to reclaiming our democracy or claiming a true, true democracy, taking away citizens' rights from corporations? Well, either t- taking away citizens' rights or maybe we allow the corporations to keep the rights, but they also have to have the responsibility – for example, you know, you and I have rights as individuals, but we also have certain responsibilities. One of those is paying taxes. And, and you know, in, 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 during World War II, corporations contributed over 50% of our tax base in the United States. In 2001, it was about 21%. In the last few years, it's been under 10%, down around 8% now. They are not carrying their weight. They are not acting as responsible members of communities. So they have the rights of individuals, but they don't have the obligations and responsibilities. Let's either take away those rights, or, or if they're going to have those rights, let's also make them have the responsibilities. Just a few more questions for you, John. Um, the last couple of weeks in conversations on the situation in Pakistan, uh, one with a reporter, Graham Usher, in Islamabad, and another with Benazir Bhutto's niece, Fatima, in Lakana, uh, we've touched on the nature of corruption there. In your book, you've have, you have corruption right in the subtitle of your new book, The Secret History of the American Empire. Uh, both times, I, I hesitantly mentioned Transparency International's ranking of the world's most corrupt nations and how Pakistan ranks 142nd, and most of the other Central Asian uh, nations are right around that same ranking. But whenever I mention uh, these rankings, I'm reminded how the investigative journalist Greg Pallas told me that I should be cautious in considering Transparency International's rankings and methods because they put the responsibility of corruption at the feet of government and uh, relatively do not put responsibility at the feet of multinationals. In June, when I mentioned this to uh, Pauline Baker of the Fund for Peace and author of the Failed States Index, she said that in the end, it really does does come down to the people in governments uh, in the government, uh, their responsibility to stand to fight corruption. In your opinion, and considering your experience of trying to sell multinationals major infrastructure uh, projects to developing nations, who do you hold as responsible responsible for corruption? And is the onus of responsibility on the shoulders of governments, not multinationals or other outside forces? 
you know, I, I look at it, 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 it's both when you come right down to it. But from my standpoint, I have control over the multinationals because I buy from them. They can't exist without you and me buying from them. That's where we need to exert the authority. We always, you know, I don't have much control over the president of Pakistan. I do have control over the corporations in, in my government and my tax money that deals with him. And, and so we really need to exert control there. I think it's really important that we understand that corruption doesn't grow on trees. Somebody has to do the corrupting. Most human beings that I've encountered are corruptible at one level or another. You know, that famous saying, you know, it's just a matter of the price. What is the price? Right. And so if somebody like an economic hitman is determined to corrupt a government official, he's probably going to succeed. I didn't succeed with Torrijo, so he was assassinated. And once that happens to a few people, then it, then it becomes even easier to corrupt the other ones. So, you know, from my standpoint, the real burden is on us and our corporations and our government because that's where we have the control, and, and we've done things in the, in the last decades that have made it very, very difficult for officials in other countries not to accept the corruption, knowing that if they don't accept it, they'll probably go down, and if they do, they'll live a pretty good life. So it makes it very difficult. So I think we have to take a huge amount of that responsibility. You write, uh, quote, history teaches us that empires do not endure. They collapse or are overthrown. Wars ensue and another empire fills the vacuum. The past sends a compelling message. We must change. We cannot afford to allow history to repeat itself. But does our current war-making technology, in particular nuclear weapons, uh, ensure our empire's survival. I mean, the world has been faced with dominating militaries in the past, but never one with the capability of threatening the quick and under destruction of an enemy. So due to war technology, are we at least more impervious to the end of empire uh, that so many past empires have experienced? No, I would say it's almost the opposite, because we're not the only ones that have nuclear technology. And, you know, we've we've discovered in, in, in all the wars that we've recently fought, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq or, or some of the more minor ones, that that our, our military isn't isn't good against uh, uh, terrorism any more, any more than the British Army was good against, the, you know, Minutemen. Uh, and that, that our threat of nuclear destruction hasn't, hasn't helped and didn't make us win in Vietnam. It's not winning in, in Iraq. Uh, you know, I think what we really need to look at is creating something that's never been done before, is turning this empire into a model, something that that can really reach out to the world and say, we're going to lead the way in creating a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world. This is no longer going to be about empire. I think we're at a time that's very much like the the, the, the period where we move from city-states to nation-states, and then we move from nation-states into alliances like the European Alliance and the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance and so on and so forth, where today we're, we're, we're seeing a very, very different world. And, and what we're really seeing is a planet that, that we used to have 180-some-odd countries, and a few of them influenced a lot of others, primarily the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, but today we see those same 180-some-odd countries but the real geopolitics is defined by what we might visualize as huge clouds that drift around the planet. And they don't really know any national boundaries. They don't respect the laws of any particular country. These are the big corporations. It's a whole new geopolitics that's, that's emerging today. If we understand that and we also understand that we have a lot of leverage over these corporations, uh, as I mentioned before, we've, we've got them to clean up polluted rivers, to open their doors to minorities, et cetera, et cetera, 
we can exert this authority on them because they're totally dependent on us. And after all, they're all run by human beings, most of whom want to create a better world for their children. Uh, John, just one last question for you. But before I ask you this uh, question, um, I first of all, I want to thank uh, Peg Booth, who uh, helped me set up this interview. Um, I don't have any direct uh, contact information for you. In fact, after this interview is over, I'm going to burn, then eat this phone number. So uh, I'm going to send her uh, my direct contact information. And uh, it, would, it would be an honor if you could get in contact with me in the future so we could have you on as a guest again, because this is a fascinating book. And this has been a very enlightening conversation uh, with you this morning. Well, I'd love to, and, and maybe I'm doing a college tour in, in May, so maybe we can get, uh, you know, include your your community in that. I'd love to do that, and I will be in Chicago also uh, in May, when the Green Festival is there, speaking of that. And incidentally, if people want to know things like that and want to get in touch with me, they can do so through my website, which is johnperkins.org. All right, I didn't even have that at our website, johnperkins.org. And, uh, yeah, definitely get in touch with me about your college tour because we'll post the entire thing at our website so people can, uh, because we have, you know, thousands of listeners every day uh, who are listening all around the world and all around the country, uh, and it would be uh, fantastic to have uh, you back on the show, and we'd be more than willing to help you promote your tour. We've been speaking with John Perkins. Uh, One last question for you, John. He is the author of The Secret History of the American Empire, Economic Hitmen, Jackals, and the Truth About Global Corruption. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. One last question for you, John, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. We try to just try to make it hard. And uh, so what will come first, the collapse of the American empire or Americans' realization that we are an empire? The latter, is, I believe, and I, I hope. You know, I'm a, I'm a very hopeful person, and, and I think because of shows like this one, uh, in radio stations like this one, uh, that will happen, that we'll understand that we're an empire and that we need to turn this thing around and we need to just create a better world for our our children and grandchildren. In order to do that, we've got to create a better world for every child and grandchild uh, on this planet. Okay, now I'm going to definitely promote your tour now that you gave me a compliment, John. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, talking with you has been an incredible pleasure. You're, it's a great show. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor to have you on the show. I really enjoyed this book, and I uh, can't wait for the movie. When the Chicago Tribune called you a feisty little radio station, I uh, I think that was an understatement. Uh, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. See, you're getting on my good graces again. <laughs> and I'll definitely put a link to your website now, too. Uh, maybe I'll get a commission or something. I don't know. All right. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate I'll it. buy you a beer in Chicago. How All right. That? That's definitely you're barking up the right tree, my friend. <laughs> great. All right. Take care, John. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Hi. That was Chuck talking with John Perkins in 2007. This is Dan Hill, board operator Dan, speaking with you in 2022 on account of Chuck's out this week. He'll be back next week, don't worry. I have another interview with John Perkins to play with you. It must have been around about the time of that book tour he was talking about at the end of the other one. John Perkins came back. This one's a little shorter, so it's from 2008 in May. Let me dial that up for you. On the line with us right now is John Perkins. He is author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, as well as the new paperback edition of the American History, uh, the Secret History of the American Empire, The Truth About Economic Hitmen, Jackals, and How to Change the World. Good morning, John. 
Good morning, Chuck. Good it's to great be with you. Yeah, great to have you back on the show. Uh, I just want to make sure that people know that next Thursday, May fifteenth, you're going to be at the Borders in Oak Park, eleven forty four Lake Street, and then a week from today on Saturday at Navy Pier, you're going to be part of the two thousand and eight Green Festival. At two p.m. next Saturday, you are going to be giving a talk called "Geopolitics: The Future and You: A Call to Action." John, you were what you call an economic hitman. You've even said in your books that uh, uh, the economic hitmen referred themselves as economic hitmen. The way that you describe them is you say that they have managed to create the world's first truly global empire, and we work primarily to get U.S. corporations big jobs in other countries. We identified third world countries that have resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then we arranged huge loans for that country from the World Bank or one of its sisters. So I'm an impoverished impoverished uh, country, let's say. Uh, I tell you that the only way uh, that I'm going to get any, or you tell me that the only way that I'm going to get any loans is if I take on some huge project like a dam. Uh, You give me that, uh, you know, you give that huge contract to some U.S. government-friendly corporation, and the money the impoverished country borrowed is now owed to the U.S. because they are in in this whole uh, process. Who hires you as an economic hitman? What are the kind of companies' names that we might be familiar with or the kind of companies that we should be familiar with? Well, uh, in, 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 you know, the, the standard ones that most of us have heard of before, like Halliburton and Bechtel and uh, Brown and Root, Stone and Webster. I worked for a company called Charles T. Maine, which, which ultimately was, was bought out by Parsons Engineering Corporation. Um, often the lead companies on this are engineering companies or economic consulting companies. And the individuals, like a lot of the people, incidentally, within those companies have no idea that those companies are doing those sorts of things. These are engineers. These are people who build projects. They're sort of out of this picture. Then there's a few individuals like me who work for these companies, and we know what we're doing. We know what we're supposed to do. We work directly for those companies. Those companies have contracts with the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank or USAID or perhaps the Treasury Department or State Department. Uh, so the individuals who are doing the economic hitman work, like me, do not work directly for the for the government, but indirectly we are working for the government. And primarily we're really working for big corporations that ultimately have tremendous control over the U.S. government and many other governments. So the uh, bigger problem then is the not not the fact that you, that you are doing this indirectly for the government, but that corporations have too much power over the American government. Yeah, corporations are really running the world today, Chuck. They they are the modern equivalent of the of the emperor, the the the, the heads of these big corporations. This is not a conspiracy theory, incidentally. These people don't have to get together to conspire to do illegal things. They're all driven by one single goal, and that is to maximize profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. That goal has created a lot of problems around the world. But in trying to achieve this goal, they, uh, or actually in achieving this goal, they essentially own all of our media, either directly or indirectly, all the mainstream media. Uh, either directly or indirectly through advertising budgets, and they control our Congress and, and our pre- in, in general our president, most of all our political leaders, because uh, to be elected in this country and in most countries you need a lot of money, and that money usually comes either directly or indirectly through the corporations.
So you go in, as an economic hitman, you go into an impoverished com- country, you tell them uh, you need this project. The only way you're going to get this project is if you get loan, uh, loans from the United States or from the World Bank or some, for, from some institution in order to get this. And then those, uh, the contracts are fulfilled by the same company that you're representing. Yeah, yeah I think, Chuck, we should, we should make a distinction here. I don't actually go to the country I go to an individual like right. the president of that country who's who I'm in the process of corrupting. But a government official, uh, is it always a government official or could it be somebody in the private sector? Who- it's almost always a government official, very high up. And, the, and that, that individual realizes that he and his family are going to make a lot of money out of this contract because although the primary recipient of the money is going to be a U.S. corporation or a multinational corporation, they're going to subcontract out to some local families and people who own the John Deere franchise, who own pipeline uh, organizations or small construction companies, and they'll pay exorbitant prices. In other words, they'll hire a small local company to do a million-dollar job, but they'll pay them $2 million, and the, the, the extra million is basically a bribe. It's a legal bribe, but it's nonetheless a bribe. The people of the country the average citizen is left holding this debt, and they don't get any benefits out of these projects because they don't have enough money to buy the electricity that that, 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 that comes from the power plants that are built or to use the ports that are built under these loans, or they, they don't have the kinds of uh, skills that will get them jobs in the industrial parks that are built out of these loans. So the real beneficiary, first of all, is the, uh, the multinational corporations, and second, a few rich families in the country, the ones that have been corrupted, and the losers are the majority of the people in the country because they're left holding this huge debt, and at some point, we economic hitmen go back to them and say, since you owe us so much money and you can't pay your debts, sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies, vote with us on the next critical United Nations vote, or send troops in support of ours to Iraq or someplace like that. And in that way, we've really created this empire. You know, uh, you, and you uh, make uh, certain that people understand that this is not a conspiracy theory and that, uh, as you were saying earlier, that this is about a corporat- corporatocracy that is uh, focused on profit at all costs whatsoever. Why do you think it is it, seemingly from the research that I do online, from emails that I get from listeners, it seems like uh, people are more interested in focusing on this as a conspiracy theory rather than questioning the kind of greed or market or profit-driven ideology that we have to address the world's problems, whether it's the environment or foreign policy. Well, I, I wish it were a conspiracy, Chuck, because a conspiracy is a fairly easy thing to ferret out and, and get rid of if, if it really were one. But this is so much more insidious than that and, and so much deeper. It, it is a fact that all these corporations are driven by this one goal of, of profits regardless of environmental and social costs. And so all these people know what they must do to, to, to further that, and it's different for different ones. Oil companies deal with it differently from chemical companies who deal with it differently from companies like Nike or, uh, you know, re- retailers and wholesalers. And But they all are headed down the same road to, to maximizing profits regardless of the cost. However, the other side is I, I have great hope that we can turn this around because this is the first empire in history that's been created primarily without the military. Therefore, we don't need to change it through violence, through military action. We can change it by influencing these corporations. 
by turning them around. And I think what we need to do is get them to redefine their goal. I'm, I, I, there's nothing wrong with maximizing profits, but let's do it within the context of creating a socially just, environmentally sustainable, and peaceful world, rather than saying regardless of social and environmental costs, let's put a framework on this that makes it all uh, possible for, for, for us and our children and grandchildren to inherit uh, a stable sustainable and just world. You know, I was talking to uh, author Loretta Napoleoni on a show a few weeks ago, and she was talking about her book, Rogue Economics, and how uh, I was asking her about this idea of national sovereignty, that those on the far right are really concerned about this North American Union. And I said, should we be more concerned about uh, America's, you know, should those on the right uh, who have this kind of concern be uh, concerned more so about our economic sovereignty and that the United States doesn't own a lot of that Americans don't owe a lot of own a lot of America nowadays and she even pointed out how the people who run Citibank now are now from many of them from Middle Eastern states and at least you could have turned to somebody at a board of directors at Citibank and said well what's best for the United States and she said now you can't even do that because they're owned by so many more people around the world so given that that we don't have this uh uh, economic sovereignty that were owned by other nations around the world. Do you still think that there can be social justice implemented by these corporations when they don't even have the national alignment that you would hope that they would have? Absolutely, I do, I, because these corporations are totally dependent on us. And if you look at corporations historically, many big ones have gone down. They no longer exist today. Look at First National Corporation that used to run big grocery stores in Atlantic and Pacific. Look at, you know, uh, Pan American Airlines. Look at ITT, which was so big that it brought down the government of Chile. It got the CIA to go in there. It was a very powerful corporation. Uh, today, it's a, it's a shadow of its former self, and, and many of the others have gone out of business. These corporations know that we have to buy everything they produce in order for them to survive. And if we really as a people uh, decide that we're not going to buy anything that's made in sweatshops, we're not going to buy any cars that aren't fuel efficient, then these corporations will have to stop producing that way. They'll have to turn it around. We force them to clean up polluted rivers in the United States. We force them to open their doors wider to women and to African Americans and other minorities. We force Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's to take trans fats out of their foods. We've been very, very successful on many, many, many issues like that. Now we need to ratchet it up a notch and simply say, we're not going to buy from any corporations who don't set as a goal uh, being socially and environmentally responsible. And in fact, Chuck, we're seeing that happen. Uh, right now, just about every ad you see on for any corporation stresses that they are trying to be greener, they're trying to be environmentally better, that the social justice, this, this, the slave issue hasn't caught on quite as well as the environmental one. But we are seeing a, a very big change here. And frankly, I think what you mentioned before about national sovereignty, we are at a time today that is very much like when the old city-states became nations. We're at a time today where nations are no longer very important, where we might envision the globe rather than 185 or so countries where fewer are very powerful like the USSR and the United States used to be. Instead of that model, what we really see today is this big globe with huge clouds drifting around it. And they really know no national boundaries. 
they don't pay much attention to any particular country's laws. They, they, they pick and choose how they want. These are the big corporations, these clouds. And they really are the geopolitics of the world today, as you pointed out with, with, with Citicorp. Uh, you know, the, the board of directors comes from all over. These corporations strike deals with the Chinese, with the Indians, with the Australians, with the Argentines, with the United States, with whoever, whoever best suits them at the time. And they are the true uh, leaders in the world today. You mentioned how they that we need to put the pressure on these corporations to become more socially and more economically responsible. And you're right. We are seeing more and more of these ads. I saw a Walmart ad the other day about how green they had gone, which seems just to be counterintuitive when you think about the whole strategy that Walmart has in putting its, corporate, its company out uh, across the United States and how it uh, promotes suburban sprawl and so forth. But if these companies, if we want to make these companies reflect us more, our desires more for social justice, for economic justice. Would you then say that this old state of corporations, the, uh, you know, uh, polluting, uh, human rights abusing, uh, cheating, if you will, when it comes to uh, trade uh, motives and trade policies, do you think that those also reflected the America of the past? I I, I... Absolutely do. I think up until very recently, we, we Americans were willing to essentially ravage the world or let it go, just not pay attention to it, be kind of in denial, let the corporations go out there and destroy rainforests to get oil, if that's the best way to get it, uh, use slave labor in Africa or Asia uh, to, to get us cheap tennis shoes or T-shirts or whatever. But that's beginning to come home to roost now. We're really beginning to understand that that's creating terrorism and, and the, the insensibility to uh, environmental change is creating climate, uh, climate change, global warming. We're beginning to understand that our own self-interest is best served if we all can live in a stable and, and a peaceful world. We're beginning to understand that this is a very small planet and that if I want my grandson, who is seven months old, to inherit a, 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 a sane world, then every child growing up in Africa and Asia and the Middle East and Latin America has to have that same expectation. We're a very small world, and I think we're really beginning to get that. So these old attitudes in the past may have served us fine in the past, but today we're living in a very, very different world than we lived in any, even 20 years ago. And I think we're finally beginning to recognize that and understanding that, that it, it behooves all of us to look at this world as one community and to protect the environment and, and social uh, justice around the entire planet. You talk about how the trade policies that have been implemented uh, and economic policies implemented by people like you when you were an economic hitman, that uh, they ended up causing uh, the terrorist blowback that we see against the United States, ended up causing events like 9-11. Now, the typical response I hear to somebody saying that it's caused by these economic or trade policies or imbalances that we have in the world is that people uh, always dismiss them, saying, I know that these people aren't walking around talking about economic, you know, the people who... uh, can become uh, terrorists, uh, potential terrorists, that they're not uh, walking around talking about economic policy. They're not talking about neoliberal economic policy or uh, trade liberalization policies. So in what way do these economic policies affect them if they're not literally having a discussion about the, you know, nuts and bolts of those policies? 
Well, I just came back from Latin America. I traveled a lot around the world. I, I've, I've met I've met terrorists. I've met guerrilla fighters in, in many different countries over the years, and I can tell you, I've never met one that wanted to do that. I'm sure there are some. There, there are always going to be fanatics in the world. There will always be serial killers in the world. There will be a few, and perhaps Osama bin Laden is amongst those. But they will never have a following, a large following, unless there are miserable, unhappy people. And so the guerrilla fighters or the terrorists that I've met are people who have been displaced. Their, their families have been uh, taken off their lands because of big hydroelectric projects or because oil companies have destroyed their lands or diamond mines or whatever it is. These are desperate people. These are starving people. And so, yeah, they may not talk about neoliberal policies, but they're terribly affected when big corporations go in and plunder their lands. These people suddenly are without jobs. In Central America today, we're seeing a tremendous influx of immigrants into this country and a rise in, in poverty because of our quote-unquote liberal trade policies towards Central America, which in essence has destroyed the economies of those countries. And when you do that to people, they become desperate. And when they become desperate, they take desperate acts. And then they become fodder for those few fanatics who are out there who may you know, maybe serial killers on a on a mass scale, and 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 there'll always be a few people in our culture that you know whose brains are wired wrong that are that are ready to go out and conduct violence, but they don't have a following unless people are desperate and miserable. So, who do you think could be the global? I mean, it, it might be something that doesn't exist today, uh, you know, a hypothetical, or it could be an organization that you see promise for today that could uh, reach out and be the regulator that we need. You talk about how these corporations are kind of like clouds just floating around the, wor- the world, around our globe. Uh, who could be? the best regulator for these corporations. Seeing as how they've globalized, it's going to have to be a global institution. Who would you think would be best suited for this role, seeing as how we've seen so much corruption and bad decisions made by so many of the international institutions that we have today? Well, I think, you know, there's there's many possibilities for institutions. It's been suggested that every corporation uh, has to have a charter, and, and that their charter should come up for renewal every 10 years, and it should be a group of, of world citizens that decide on whether that corporation's charter gets renewed or not, and it should be based on whether they are truly striving uh, to create a sustainable and, and socially just world. And, and you could, you know, you could conceivably the UN could perform that function. Conceivably, the World Bank could form could, could perform that function if it were reconstituted. But I think more important than any of that is a commitment on all of our parts to want to see that happen. I think the real, the, real, the real secret here is for each of us, every time we go shopping, or perhaps more importantly, choose not to go shopping, but when we do buy something, that we make sure that we buy something that is made by a company that is dedicated to being socially uh, responsible and, and, and environmentally responsible. And when we don't buy from a company that, that is using a sweatshop like a Nike, Send them an email and tell them why you're not buying their product. And, and, and the company that you do choose to buy from that's making it more responsibly, send them an email and encourage them. And you mentioned Walmart earlier. You know, we all know Walmart's created a lot of problems, but it does appear that they're trying at least to be greener now. And people who shop at Walmart should 
tell them we're glad to see that you've got some of these green products. I go into your store and I buy such and such a product and such and such a product because I know that that company is trying to do a good job and please keep this up and do it even more. We need to encourage these companies to do a better job and to let them know when they're not doing a good job, that we're not going to buy those things from them. You know, this role of economic hitman, it always startles me, whether I'm reading uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman or your new paperback version of uh, The Secret History of the American Empire, because you state it so matter-of-factly that, you know, this is what I did. I went into these countries. I convinced them that they needed these huge projects. They then uh, got these projects from the company that I represented. They had to take out loans from the United States, which they then couldn't pay off. They then had to give the United States cheap resources. I mean, it, it seems like such a, a horrible cycle that you that the economic hitmen get these impoverished nations into. But if the uh, role of the economic hitman and then the jackals, who you call the people who go in to, uh, if you know your process doesn't work, assassinate leaders or eventually the military rolls in to make sure that there is an American-friendly leadership in that country to make sure that America's corporatocracy has uh, their foothold within that country. It seems like if this is the case, if this is the way it is, this is the way that our country is being run, our our foreign policy is being executed overseas, our trade policies are being uh, executed overseas, how aware are people on Capitol Hill that this is going on? Because this is certainly, you know, when your first book came out, yeah, it got some headlines, but I mean, you would think that this would be like uh, when I watched the Ron Contra hearings, the next day that there's going to be a revolution in the streets, but there wasn't anything happening the next day. Why is it that Americans are still disconnected from this process? They still don't know that this process is going on. And how aware are our, our elected representatives that this is the process, this is the system? Any of the elected representatives that are directly involved in committees that deal with these things are very aware of it. There are other elected uh, representatives that may not be as, as aware of it who are, who are much more focused on some other uh, committees in Congress and so forth. All the people who run our big corporations are very aware of it. They want to keep it quiet. Um, you know, yeah, my, my book, Confessions, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year and a half, and the New York Times never, or almost a year and a half, sorry, New York Times never even reviewed it. But the New York Times gets its advertising from the big corporations that didn't want my book to be out there. Nonetheless, the media gets it out there. You get it out there. It's in 30 languages. It sold millions of copies. It's going to be made into a major Hollywood movie. The message is getting out there. There's a lot of movies out now, Syriana, Blood Diamond, The Constant Gardener, etc., many books. People are getting the message, Chuck. In the three and a half years since Confessions came out, I've been traveling around the country talking a lot, as, as I will uh, next week at the Green Festival in Chicago and, and at the Borders Bookstore that you mentioned in Oak Park. And, and as I've traveled around, I've seen tremendous changes in people's attitudes in three and a half years. We're seeing much greater turnouts. Last year, we had, I think, 40,000 people at the Green Festival in Chicago. This year, I think they're expecting quite a few more. And, you know, I think we're seeing a major change. I think people are beginning to get it. And two or three years is a very short time in the history of this process. It seems long for us who are in the middle of it, but things are happening. Things are changing, and we are seeing corporations uh, finding that they have to be greener and that they have to promote uh, that environmental and social responsibility aspect. What does a post-economic hitman 
uh, foreign policy and trade policy look like for the United States? Are we suddenly, uh, you know, in the eyes of especially the American right wing, are we suddenly emasculated? No, I think I think very much to the contrary. Um, I just came back from Nicaragua, and I'm, I'm answering your question by an example, um, where I was with a group of philanthropic investors, people with a lot of that made a lot of money in this country, and now want to invest it philanthropically in other places, and they were wanting to helping the, the campesino farmers in Nicaragua uh, develop organic farms and sell to Whole Foods and others. Whole Foods was involved, and when some of their people were there with us, and. What we found in Nicaragua was that a great deal of the land there has been destroyed by multinational agribusinesses, Dole and Chiquita and the United Brands. It cannot be farmed organically, but it can be cleaned up. And in the same with lakes and rivers, and the same with land all over the world. Nicaragua is just one little example. There's a huge economy there. Imagine if we just took a percentage of our current military budget, hired the same companies that are currently making weapons, like General Dynamics, for example, to instead make equipment that can clean up polluted land and water and air around the world and develop techniques for helping people learn how to feed themselves, who are people who are today starving. Um, we can create an amazing economy and a very, very successful economy based on love, on, on life and compassion and, and creating a better world for our children rather than one based on destroying lands and killing people and creating a violent world. We can turn this economy around. We're poised at the, at the, at the beginning of what I think is a very important revolution and what it's really going to take to bring this around. This is a peaceful revolution, a democratic revolution, one that will create a better world. And what it's really going to take is for all your listeners to just be really committed uh, to, to doing whatever they can within their own lives to support uh, corporations and others who are dedicated to social and environmental responsibility. Uh, John, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I, I don't have a question from hell for you today because it would just take us way too long, and uh, special programming is uh, coming in right now to take over. But I, I just got to know who's playing you in the movie, and if you tell me it's Matt Damon, I'm going to find you and punch you myself. <laughs> well, actually, they've rewritten it a little bit to make me, me an older economic hitman in the movie, and the, the, the person that's committed to it right now is uh, Harrison Ford. Oh, that's pretty good. I was hoping James Coburn, but I think he's uh, gone, because wouldn't it be cool to have in like Flint like there playing you? <laughs> you know, I just want to see it get out there and get the message spread spread wider. And Chuck, thank you. I, and I really look forward to, to, seeing, to seeing and talking to some of your listeners at, at Borders and in Oak Park on May 15th, and then at the Green Festival in, in Chicago. Next Saturday. Uh, on Saturday, yeah, the 17th. All right, John, I really appreciate you being back on the show with us this morning. Two fantastic books. Uh, uh, all the best to you. It's always great to hear your voice, sir. Thanks. Keep up your great work of spreading the word. All right, thank you, John. Bye. Hey, remember Borders? Zoomers don't. On account of the arrow of time flows in but one direction. That's okay. This is board operator Dan filling in for Chuck, who's out this week. He'll be back with regular shows next week. You know, he's, he's still doing the Patreon show tomorrow, so if you're not already among the true This Is Hell Faithful, go jack into the mainframe over there at patreon.com slash thisishellradio. You'll for sure want to get signed up before tomorrow, because I know Chuck is going to be turbocharged from his week off and that this week's musing will have 
and an especially incisive edge. And I think he's playing some classic interviews with the recently departed writer and political activist, Mike Davis. All right, let's bring it home with your answers to this week's question from hell. You'll recall that this week's question from hell is, what are you doing with your extra hour from daylight savings time, which ends at 2 a.m. on Sunday, November 6th? Question from hell kind of doubles as a PSA. Because I know people get caught unawares. Over at Facebook, John T. answers, trying to sort things out with the upstairs neighbor. Pete V. says, unspeakable acts. That's it for Facebook. Over at Twitter, CKUW 95.9 FM answers, an extra hour of doom scrolling. Ahmad S. says, reflecting on that moment, when Marx's book fell on my head and I entered hell. Fred Bow answers, I shall ponder what it will be like on November 5th, 2023, when we won't be turning the clocks back an hour. Didn't know about that. Maybe it's to do with uh, leap years. Hypocrite Reader responds, giggling. Just giggling for an hour. Picturing kind of like, Chris Farley leaned up against that bus and Billy Madison when he's eating all those kids' lunches, just giggling. It's a joyful image. Peter M. says, spending 60 minutes trying to figure out if it's 7 or 8 a.m. We've all been there, friend. And finally, Object U answers, I get an extra hour to procrastinate on homework assignments. All right. Let's see. It is the last show of the week so it falls to me to select the winner i enjoyed all these ribald responses to this week's question from hell but i have to say that among them i esteemed none so much as ahmad s's response where he said that he would spend his extra hour reflecting on the moment that marx's book fell on his head and that he entered into a phantasmagorical hell-like dimension. Congratulations, Ahmad S. You are this week's winner. Please reach out via Twitter or to thisishellradio at gmail.com, and we'll get you hooked up with some cherry This Is Hell merchandise of your choosing. Thanks very much to you, radio listeners, for whiling away this morning with me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We'll be back next week with regular This Is Hell programming. This carnival will have ended, and I will resume my regular duties as just board operator Dan, sliding the little volume things up and down and making sure the lights are green, never red. Until then. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>